a lot of doctors will tell you that once you're on Manjaro, you should just keep taking it. It's, it's a lifelong drug. But insurance often stops covering it once your blood sugar is under control. Now, that might sound strange to you, but that's exactly what happened to me. The Manjaro worked. It worked very well. It brought my A1C levels well below the pre-diabetes range into the very healthy and normal range. So what did my insurance company do? As soon as they saw the medication doing what it's supposed to do, they denied a refill of the medication. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes Podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to solvingtype2diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes Podcast. I certainly am glad that you're here with me today. I appreciate the fact that you're spending some time with me here. I know you have a lot of choices on what to listen to, so I'm happy that you picked this podcast. Hopefully you have subscribed and can catch it every two weeks when it comes out bright and early on a Monday morning. The past two weeks have been very good for me. I hope they've been good for you. Here in the U.S., where about 90% of you listen, it was Thanksgiving this past Thursday. So I had a really great Thanksgiving day. It started out on my favorite rail trail with one of my favorite hiking buddies. One of my daughters came out with me, and they are up visiting from Maryland, and they came for the day. So about 9 o'clock, I went and picked her up, and she's staying in a local hotel because our place is small. So it's, I think, uh, a lot more comfortable for them to just uh, get a hotel room for one night. But I picked her up about 9 o'clock, and we headed out to the Lebanon Valley Rail Trail. And we had a really great uh, 5K walk out there. So I guess you could say we did a little turkey trot of our own. That's a tradition for a lot of people is to get out and do 5K or a walk or a run or something like that on Thanksgiving Day. And so we did that. We got back and then uh, we celebrated Thanksgiving Day with uh, a lot of family. I guess there was about 12 of us here all together and had a really great day. My wife made a fabulous meal and other daughters whatnot contributed as well, but my wife did most of the work for about two days prior and the day of and a day after. It's, it's a lot of work putting on a big meal for a lot of people, but it was really good. I had some fabulous turkey. I like my sweet potato casserole. It's made a little bit on the low sugar side. A little bit of brown sugar goes into it, but serving for serving, I guess there's not too much brown sugar in there. Had a nice uh, layering of pecans on top, so it was really good. Had some green beans, some roasted carrots, and a really great meal. Had some, just a little bit of the uh, saffron stuffing, and uh, I really enjoy that. So it was a great meal, great time with the family. Unfortunately, 
around 4.30 in the afternoon, my day went downhill a little bit. I am a follower and supporter of the Washington Commanders football team. More often than not, during the fall, my Sundays are somewhat disappointing, and this one did not fail to disappoint at being disappointing. Of course, the Commanders lost, and I think they've lost now 8 of 12 games so far this season. I'm used to it. They lost when they were the Washington Redskins, and now they lose when they're the Washington Commanders. But nonetheless, I feel like I need to stick with them. If I went for the local team, the Philadelphia Eagles, I would be having a much more winning season than I'm having with my Washington Commanders. But so is the story of football. Any given Sunday, I'm told, we can win. But most Sundays, we don't. So this has been the first two weeks for me back on Farsiga. It's a little bit under a month, so this is my first two-week period, I believe, if I'm recollecting correctly, about being back on the Farsiga. And if you remember, a while ago, a year ago, I was taking Farsiga and Metformin. And now I'm back to taking Farsiga and Metformin after my nine months of bliss on Manjaro, but that's over. This full two-week period has allowed me to get a average blood sugar reading for these two weeks, now with the effects of Farsiga and Metformin. And I got to tell you, a little sidebar here, but I think I'm getting smarter with my Metformin. I currently am prescribed two 500 milligram tablets per day, and I usually eat about twice per day. In the morning, I usually just have my coffee with a little bit of heavy cream, but any meals that contain carbohydrates usually happen early afternoon, and then again late afternoon. I'm trying to keep my eating window, if you will. Some call it intermittent fasting, but I try and keep my eating, except for my coffee with cream, I try and keep that between, let's say, 1 p.m. and 6 or 7 p.m. Perfect world, I'd stop eating just around 6 p.m. And by doing that, now with my two tablets of metformin that I'm allowed, I try and take one tablet of metformin one hour to 30 minutes before I eat the first time and then take the other tablet about one hour to 30 minutes before I eat the second time. And in between those two, I try and get in a good walk. So that overall conversation has really been mediating my blood sugar spikes. Uh, I think I'm taking metformin better than I took it prior. Before, I used to just take it first thing when I woke up in the morning, and then again right before I go to bed, figuring space them out 10-12 hours apart, and that's better. But really, what I'm learning now is that by taking the metformin the way my doctor has recently advised, which is right before meals, not with the meal, but right before meals, she said that's more helpful. And I, in fact, am seeing that with my blood sugar spikes. They're really being muted, if you will, by taking the metformin that way. So anyway, I was talking about Farsiga. It's my first full two weeks back on Marsiga, Farsiga, and my blood sugar has averaged 144 over the past two weeks. Now that's including Thanksgiving. And I had apple pie and a little sliver of apple pie, a little sliver of pecan pie, a little sliver of pumpkin pie as part of my Thanksgiving Day celebration with the family. And it's still, over the past two weeks, has averaged 144. So what does this tell me? This tells me now that 
the Farsiga and the Metformin are doing its job. Now, am I down averaging about 110, 115 like I was just with the Manjaro? No, I'm not. But I am below, a little bit below, the type 2 diabetes level. So I am questioning whether or not seeing an endocrinologist will do me any good. As you may remember, I currently have a, an appointment for this week. I think it's on Thursday, so about five days from now. I have an appointment scheduled with an endocrinologist. And I am really thinking, is that appointment going to do me any good? What am I going to see an endocrinologist for? When I scheduled this appointment, it was prior to taking the Farsiga again. And the metformin by itself was not doing any good. But now that I am back on the Farsiga with my primary care physician and my blood sugar is below 7, it's probably, if I had to take an A1C right now, according to my GMI indicator, it would be about 6.8, which is just a hair above the 6.7 goal, but still it's below 7. And even the endocrinologist won't get Manjaro approved with my health insurance as long as my blood sugar is below 7. And honestly, I'd rather keep it below 7 than artificially elevate it by eating a whole lot of carbs and then justifying getting the Manjaro. Because I know as soon as I go on the Manjaro, I'm not going to be able to eat a whole bunch of carbs. Therefore, my A1C will go back down, which means they will again deny it. So the best that could get me is maybe six months. And it's, I don't know. The endocrinologist is there to help me manage my blood sugar. I'm currently managing my blood sugar. I don't know. I'm seriously questioning it. We'll have to see what happens. By the time this next episode comes out in two weeks, I will or will not have gone. And I will share that with you and share with you my thoughts as to whether or not I went. Last week, I started a new segment called What's on My Needles. I picked up knitting earlier. Now it's been about a year. It was last November, as a matter of fact, that one of my daughters taught me how to knit. And I've been doing that now over the past year. So I thought I'm going to start including that little segment because some of you might knit. Tens of millions of people in the U.S. and even more across the world knit. So there's a chance that you may knit. So I'm going to share that with you. And I'm going to share pictures in the show notes to projects I either have completed or I'm currently working on. So that's going to be a new part of the show notes for each episode as well. Last week I told you I was working on the Lindahl Toratella, which is basically a scarf. Uh, I'll have a picture of that completed because it is done now. I did finish the Lindahl Toratella. And I also finished two hats. One was for a junction fiber mill knit-along called Read This hat, which has some text on it. I made that for my brother. It says, Go Eagles! Fly, no, it says, Fly Eagles! Go Birds! Which is a saying if you're a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, they say that a lot. So I hope he enjoys that. I know he does not listen to this podcast. I don't think he listens to any podcasts, but I that will be a surprise for him, even though I'm mentioning it here. I also finished a hat for my wife. And I use Junction Fiber Mills Making Tracks yarn, and I'll have a picture of that as well. So today I'll be starting a pair of mittens also for my wife. I'm going to give her a hat, mittens, and scarf for Christmas. 
So I think she'll enjoy that. She actually picked out the colorway. It's in Junction Fiber Mills Making Tracks Yarn in the Cider Donuts colorway, which was for the New York Sheep and Wool Festival. It was a special colorway they made just for that because one of the things that's famous up there in Rhinebeck, New York, are the cider donuts, the apple cider donuts. So this colorway is supposed to give you a remembrance of those cider donuts, which I did not have even though I went to the uh, New York Sheep and Wool Festival this year. I, the line was too long. It wasn't the sugar. It wasn't the fact that I wanted to deny myself. But at no point in time did I see the line less than what I um, assumed was about 30 to 45 minutes wait. And I'm not waiting 30 to 45 minutes for a donut. I'm sorry. I don't care how good it is. So as far as my sourdough starter goes, and you may remember that about a month ago now, it was on October 25th, actually, that I started my experimentation in making sourdough. And the first thing you do is make starter. Unfortunately, about a week ago, the old starter had gotten mold. And when that happens, there's absolutely nothing you can do. You gotta throw the whole thing out and start over. And I did not have a backup starter, which some people do by drying out some starter. It hadn't matured enough, honestly, to make a good backup starter. So I just started fresh. And I started with a 50% mix of whole wheat flour and 50% bread flour. And this starter has been going gangbusters. It's seven days in, it's really looking strong, and I'll include a picture of that as well in the show notes. A link uh, to a picture. It's, I put that stuff up on my Instagram. So if you really want to see my knitting and if you really want to see my sourdough progress, uh, follow me on Instagram. Not the podcast Instagram, but my personal Instagram, which is Tom Kreider, all one word. T-O-M-K-R-E-I-D-E-R, all one word. But I think I'll be making bread now within this next week. So hopefully in the next episode, I will have a good report on my first sourdough uh, bread making. But if you want to follow along every day, uh, just uh, follow my Instagram, Tom Kreider, and you'll see it all right there. But I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So let's take a look at the news. I've got some good ones here for you. And this one, first of all, is ironic because I actually went through it. This first article is called, What Happens When You Leave Manjaro. And this article is talking about what happens to a lot of people when they leave the using Manjaro. And unfortunately, that happens to a lot of people because insurance is the way it is. A lot of doctors will tell you that once you're on Manjaro, you should just keep taking it. It's, it's a lifelong drug. But insurance often stops covering it once your blood sugar is out of control. Now that might sound strange to you, but that's exactly what happened to me. The Manjaro worked. It worked very well. It brought my A1C levels well below the pre-diabetes range into the very healthy and normal range. So what my insurance company do? As soon as they saw the medication doing what it's supposed to do, they denied a refill of the medication. And going to an endocrinologist or anyone else is not going to be able to change that because they say if your A1C is below 7, they will not approve Manjaro because your Manjaro is supposed to bring your A1C below 7. I can't understand the logic, but that is the way it, it works. So I'm not going to pay cash. It would be almost $1,000 a month. 
And I'm not going to do that because as I just reported earlier, I'm actually controlling my blood sugar almost as well, good enough, according to the medical establishment, good enough with the Farsiga and the metformin. So that's what I'm going to do. Anyway, this article goes on to say here that your blood sugar may spike because if you don't do anything, the Manjaro was keeping your blood sugar down, so it could go up. And that's what happened to me. There was about a month after the Manjaro before I saw my doctor where I was taking nothing. And my blood sugar average at that time was about 180, 190. Obviously, that was well into the type 2 diabetes range again. It says your appetite may increase. That absolutely happened to me. In fact, that's the one thing that I still really miss. Even though I'm controlling my blood sugar, my appetite control is not being managed by the medication anymore. I'm back to the way I was prior to that nine months of bliss. And of course, since your appetite is back, it says here you may regain some weight. That has also happened to me. Now, it has not gone out of control. I still have maintained most of my loss, but I am about eh, eight pounds up from where I was at my lowest while using Manjaro. And if you remember my one-year anniversary episode this past September, I mentioned how over the past year, I had lost about 30, 35 pounds. So I am up eight of that, but I'm working hard on that. One of the things I'm doing is what I described earlier, this intermittent fasting of not eating past 6 p.m. in the evening and really not having anything except my coffee before, let's say, lunchtime. So while doctors say you should just stay on the Manjaro, in many cases, that's often not possible. So if you want to hear more details about that, make sure you check out uh, this article. Now here's the next one. Sleeping more may reduce your risk of diabetes. So what this is saying is that they did a study on insulin resistance and they're finding that insulin resistance gets worse if you do not have regular sleep and that it's the sleep that resets something in your body. And they're saying that if you'll get six hours or less, there's a dramatic shift in the hormones that affect insulin resistance in the negative way. But if you get more than seven, and it's saying that for most adults, seven to eight hours is typical for good hormone balance. And it has to do with the hormone insulin, the hormone cortisol. And when you're producing cortisol, your insulin is not working. So it's saying that the less sleep you get, the higher your cortisol production and it's a good thing to think about. In fact, I think next week I'm going to talk about the role and importance of sleep a little more in depth. So this was a good article. This is a, this is a teaser for us. Now here's one that has to do with taxes. In Germany, they're looking at taxing sugar-sweetened beverages, a specific tax, and they're saying by adding this tax, which they have not done yet, but they're saying that they believe it would save up to 10 billion euros over 20 years in health costs simply by taxing the sugar-sweetened beverages that could help prevent or postpone cases of type 2 diabetes. So they're doing it for money reasons. They're saying that, yes, it's going to help people with their health, but they want to do this, which they have not yet, but they want to do this basically to improve the economy. That's a good reason as any to do it. 
unless you're a big fan of sugar-sweetened beverages and I guess don't want to pay that tax. But basically what I think their theory is, just like taxing cigarettes or taxing alcohol, is that these things cause health problems. And they believe, as I do, sugar-sweetened beverages cause health problems. Therefore, why not have the people who use those pay the tax to help mitigate the expense of some of these health problems, which to me makes sense. I think New York City tried this for a while, or maybe they did it, but various people have tried this because type 2 diabetes is very expensive. So I think they're looking for a way to recoup some of those costs. So that's an interesting one. Now here's one I think can help all of us with type 2 diabetes diagnosis. And this article is entitled, How to Avoid Blood Sugar Highs and Lows if You Have Type 2 Diabetes. And blood sugar highs and lows are are a big symptom of type 2 diabetes because you often take medicine to reduce your blood sugar levels, and sometimes that medicine can work too good and get it too low, let's say below 70 milligrams per deciliter. And that's the number that's usually reported in the U.S., And they say you want to keep your blood sugar between 70 and 150 uh, throughout the day, avoiding anything higher than 150, avoiding anything lower than 70. The only thing that can cause really low blood sugar if you have type 2 diabetes is medication or not taking the right amount of medication, not taking it if you're supposed to take it with food, not taking it with food, taking multiple medications that might compound each other things like that. But hyperglycemia, the spikes, the high blood sugar, is often comes from eating, especially I've found for me, eating carbs, lots of breads, crackers, sweets, treats, things like that. That can make your blood sugar spike. And they have here strategies to control your blood sugar. First of all, educate yourself on yourself. Find out what causes your blood sugar to go up and down. And the way you do that is through monitoring, either frequently testing your blood sugar or wearing a continuous blood sugar monitor like I do. But you have to know how you react. And that's what I absolutely love about the CGM, the continuous glucose monitor so much, is the fact that it allows me to know how my body reacts to specific foods, specific activities, things like that. So this article says, of course, to test your blood sugar. It also says to exercise and count your carbohydrates. Know what you're taking in. That, in addition to taking your medication, and as we said before, getting good sleep uh, are things you can do to help avoid those spikes. And for me right now, the scheduling of my metformin right before my meals and also getting in a nice walk between my meals or after my meals That is something that's right now controlling my spikes really well. The last couple of weeks, I almost never went above 200. I never went below 70. Of course, I don't take enough medication really to drive it below 70. So my blood sugar average, while being 144, really stayed in a tight range around that number. Almost 90% of the time, it stayed between 100 and 170. To me, that's really good control. And that's one sign that you have your blood sugar and your type 2 diabetes well managed. This last article here, it says poor nutrition linked to poor mental health 
and diabetes, according to new research. We know that poor nutrition can lead to type 2 diabetes. Eating a lot of sugar, carbs, processed foods, especially things that are highly palatable to where you eat a whole bunch, that can obviously link to diabetes. But poor mental health? Yeah. Actually, this article here says that you can have depression, you can have anxiety all around your eating. And therefore, by eating healthy, eating things that don't cause these sugar spikes and sugar lows, things like that, actually improves your mental health. Not only is eating well good for your body, but it's good for your mind as well. So I thought that was very interesting. So hopefully you got something out of those news articles. I picked those out thinking you might like them. So let me know if I'm covering the right type of news articles that you would like to see covered. All right, so this week I promise we're going to talk about macros. Not only my macros, but why macros might be important. Of course, this is something that you have to decide for yourself with your nutritionist, with your doctor. What I'm describing is what I'm finding works well for me. So what are macros? You hear that buzzword all the time. Oh, macros. Track your macros. Look at your macros. Don't have too many macros. Macros are nutrients. There's three classes of nutrients. That's food we eat that's nutritional for us that are categorized as macronutrients because they make up the bulk of what we eat. And those three things are protein. Those are the things made of amino acids that help build everything in our body. If our body has a structure, there's protein in there. The next one is fat. Fat is used in a lot of hormones, Fat is needed to line your nerves, just wire. There's always insulation on the outside. Fat is actually an insulation for your nerves to help your body conduct electricity and signals through your nerves. So fat is absolutely required. Fat also gives us a long-term energy storage. Most folks, even of healthy, normal, average, or typical body weight, have enough fat stores to support their body for days and days without eating. We carry around fat with us. Even if it's not obvious, we have fat in our bodies. And that's energy. It's what our body uses during nice, leisurely, low energetic exercise and movement, like a stroll or a a nice walk, or, you know, our body burns fat. Think of it as a big log on the fire uh, that burns for hours and hours, but burns pretty slowly. That's fat. The third macronutrient is also energy, and that's carbohydrates think of as kindling wood or tinder on a fire, something that, uh, yes, tinder had a name before the app. But it's the same thought. It makes a hot fire. But tinder uh, burns quickly, burns fast, and that's what carbohydrates do for our body. Carbohydrates basically are the go-to first course of energy uh, for our body when we need to move quickly when we need to sprint, when we need to stand up or do squats, or we're burning a lot of carbs at that point, a lot of sugar. Because that's what carbohydrates are. It's just, it's pure sugar. It all breaks down to glucose. All the carbohydrates you eat breaks down to glucose, and then your body burns them. It's part of the ATP cycle. Anyway, we won't get into biochemistry right here, right now. But it's carbohydrates can be important. If you don't have another source, something like maybe ketones, then you're going to need the carbohydrates. Your body prefers 
carbohydrates and ketones over fat. It's almost like the quick-burning sugars help burn the fat. In fact, it's used in the process. In order to metabolize lipids, you need a little bit of ketones or carbohydrates. And if I got that wrong, chime in. Please let me know. But what are not macros? Are obviously things that your body needs, protein, fat, carbs. But things that are not macros are also needed by your body. Fiber, for example. Fibers, while technically a carbohydrate, fiber is not digested by your body. Now, it might be digested by some very important bacteria in your system, which is why we like to get fiber. Fiber also has other benefits with digestion. Vitamins and minerals are also not counted in macros, but are important. They're often found in vegetables and things like that, fruits. That's where we get most of our vitamins and minerals. And there's other non-nutritives, things we eat but are not really used by the body. Some sugar alcohols, things like that, are non-nutritives. Splenda, Equal, those types of non-nutritive, some people call artificial sweeteners, they're not really artificial, they're just not nutritive. They don't give us energy. They taste sweet, and that's about it. So why are macros important? I just said that a little bit in that without the protein, we're not building bones and muscles. Without the fat, we're not giving ourselves long-term energy. And without some carbohydrates, we're really not giving ourselves a bunch of quick burst energy. Now, I know ketone fans will say, but Tom, you can go into keto and ketosis and have that as a substitute for carbohydrates. Very true. I've done that for a while. In fact, honestly, while I don't measure it, I think with the few carbohydrates I eat, and I seem to have plenty of energy all the time, I think that I'm using ketones a lot myself. But I don't measure them, so I'm not going to talk about that too much. So that's really why they're important. Let's talk about me. And again, this only applies to me. Please don't take this as a prescription for yourself. I'm certainly not a a nutritionist. For me, I have some goals with my protein. I like to keep my protein intake at at least 120 grams per day. I've read a lot about this, and I believe that even as I'm losing weight or if I'm not losing weight, Keeping my protein high is important so that when I do go for these long walks or have movement, my muscles are still strong, they still are there to support me in doing what I need to do. Repair bones, things like that, repair muscle damage, repair skin damage, anything like that, you need protein. So I like to keep my proteins up about 120 grams a day. Now I'm a 200 pound man and 195, but anyway, close to 200. And that's what I think, for me personally, is my goal for protein. If I were lifting weights, if I were bodybuilding, it would be much higher. If I were very sedentary, it might be a tad lower, but not too much. I don't want to lose muscle. My goal for my carbohydrates is not more than 80 grams a day. Now, this is for me personally. This is not for you. I keep my carbs to not more than 80 grams as a super tool for me in controlling my blood sugar levels. I find that with my current medications, if I get much higher than 80 grams and don't balance it with an extra long walk or something, then yes, my blood sugar is going to spike or going to have a higher average. I also like to keep my carbohydrates to not more than, let's say, 
30 to 40 grams at any one sitting. And that way I also try and avoid a spike. But for the entire day, I like to keep my carbohydrates below 80. So for fat, I keep my fat at about 120, 120 grams a day, or to meet whatever my caloric goal is. Looking at my protein, that has a floor, let's say it. Uh, there's at least 120 grams. The carbs have a ceiling. That's not more than 80 grams. So I call those my stops, my bumpers. But fat, I'm a little bit loosey-goosey on that. The fat I just use to balance out my caloric goal. Now, fat has about 9 calories per gram. Carbs and protein each have about 4 calories per gram of energy. So if you add all that up, what I just said there, at least 120 grams of protein, not more than 80 grams of carbs, and about 120 grams of fat, that's about 1,900 calories per day, which is, I'd say is about my baseline. That's about where I like to be right now. Now, I'm not tight with that. Some days it might be 17 or 1,800 calories. Some days it might be 2,000. Thanksgiving was probably I don't know, probably close to 3,000 calories, but that's a, that's an exception. About 1,900 calories a day is, I think, what I go for my average over the course of a week. So those are my macro goals. You're going to have different macro goals. I found mine through years of experimentation. You might find a quicker solution by working with a dietitian or a nutritionist, or maybe you do it my way and go through years of experimentation. I know that in CrossFit, when they were talking about the nutrition, they often go 35, 35, 30. So basically splitting up the macros in thirds. So a third of your calories comes from carbs, a third of your calories comes from protein, a third of your calories comes from fat, and then they start to adjust there based on their own specific goals. But again, that's if you're following that nutrition plan in CrossFit. So figure out what works for you. If you've already figured out your macro plan, let me know. Now, if you don't use macro counting, I'd be interested in in hearing about what you use instead. Please reach out and let me know. We did have somebody reach out this week, and it's Steve from the UK. All the way across the pond, Steve wrote in, and he says, Hi, Tom. I'm still listening along and enjoying your podcast while I continue my type 2 diabetes journey. Ozempic, man arrested in skinny jab ingredient raids. So Steve sent us an article here from the BBC, and he says, Here's some news from my corner of the world. With limited supplies through our National Health Service in the UK, there has become a black market trade in Ozempic. Steve. Hey, thanks, Steve, for writing in. And I did look at this article that Steve sent in, And it's similar to one we reported on last week, except this one's from the UK. And it's about uh, this guy who was selling uh, this drug, or selling a liquid anyway, that he claimed to be Ozempic. And Ozempic is prescribed for type 2 diabetes, but a lot of folks use it for weight loss, even if they don't have type 2 diabetes. And that's, I think, why it's become incredibly popular, incredibly hard to get, and very expensive. So obviously, like this article that Steve sent in, shows that there's a black market. Now, here's the problem. And whatever, black markets, yeah, I don't know if I'm a fan or for or against black markets. I think economy is good in many forms. 
But the problem is you don't know what you're getting. So this guy is selling a liquid that comes in a vial. Is it Ozempic? Is it something else? Is it water? There's no way to do an analysis when a guy in a back alley sells you some drugs or liquid in a vial and says, hey, this is Ozempic. I don't care what you're paying for it. Man, I don't. to me, it's not worth the risk. So to me, that's the danger. So I would say stay away that anything that does not come from the medical system because I know it's hard to get. I know it's incredibly expensive, even if you can get it. But man, why risk buying something from uh, Jimmy on the corner when you really, truly don't know what it is? If I were to buy something from Jimmy on the corner, I think it would be something that at least I can identify. Anyway, thanks, Steve, for writing in. If you'd like to write in, and maybe you want to write in about a topic suggestion, tell me what you're doing with your macros. Hey, write in, tell me what you're knitting or how your sourdough bread is coming. There's two easy ways to do that. The first is to just send me an email. My email address is tom at solvingtype2diabetes.com. The other way is to head over to the website, solvingtype2diabetes.com, and click on Feedback and send in your question, your comment, suggestion for a new topic, or tell me what I'm doing right, or tell me what I'm doing wrong. I'd be happy to hear it. So next week, in two weeks, I mean, you know, when I say next week and last week, I hope by now you understand I'm meaning two weeks. So when the next episode comes out in two weeks, I want to dive deeper into the role of sleep in solving type 2 diabetes. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at SolvingType2Diabetes.com. There, you also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. Please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.